two sharper iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, September 5th, we are studying Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 36. In today's text, Moses follows the Lord's instructions, both for consecrating the tabernacle and its furnishings, and for ordaining Aaron and his sons. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz serves as pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Tell us about the book of Leviticus, Pastor Kuntz. What should we know? It is a book that is connected, if you read enough of the Bible, perhaps most intimately to the Lord's work, especially his priestly work, his work of atonement, his work of sacrifice, his work of expiation that you see at the end of each of the Gospels. So there is something about it that seems dry right away, but the more that you study the whole of Scripture, the richer Leviticus is going to look. Hmm. So what it, what particularly at the end of the Gospels do we need to be paying attention to that connects to Leviticus? At the end of the Gospels, you'll notice that the Gospels don't actually have that many events in common. Um, the baptism of the Lord, the feeding of the 5,000, but the death and resurrection of Jesus is, of course, common to each of the four Gospels. And the way that the death of the Lord Jesus occurs outside the camp um, as a blood atonement in place of someone else, the things that he says, the way that he describes the necessity throughout the Gospels, each of them, of this work of dying, all of that is so much more understandable and so much richer when you see it and you know it in and through Leviticus. Hmm. Now, we've been covering the matter of sacrifices of various kinds in the first seven chapters, both the instructions for the people of Israel themselves and some of the instructions for the priests. There was a bit of a summary at the end of chapter 7 concerning that. Now chapter 8 takes us into a, a little bit of a different section in Leviticus, and even stuff happens. It's, it's not just instructions, but we actually get a bit of a narrative here for a couple chapters, starting in chapter 8. What of the context do we need to know to help us with, with this chapter? We need to know that we have a certain amount of the offerings, not all of them. The Day of Atonement has not yet been discussed in great detail, but that we have a certain amount of the work of the priesthood already set up. So now we will move into how that work will be inaugurated with what we would now describe as an ordination of Aaron and of his sons so that they can now do this work on behalf of Israel. Hmm. Are there any features particularly that stand out in, in Leviticus chapter 8? I, there's been a lot of repetition in the first chapters that I find very helpful, especially as I've been reading it out loud for the show. Any features, things that we need to be looking for that, that run through this chapter? 
I would look especially at something to which the letter to the Hebrews calls great attention, which is the necessity of this priesthood, the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, to offer sacrifice for itself. The necessity for forgiveness for this priesthood. Because the idea that the Lord Jesus does not come from this tribe, and yet is greater than Aaron, is, is truly the great high priest, is important specifically because many of the things necessary to ordain a sinful man, either then in the Levitical priesthood or now in the ministry of Christ's church, are not necessary at all, not to speak of animal sacrifice, but even the forgiveness that is necessary between a pastor and a congregation is not necessary for the Lord Jesus. So what we're going to see are not only things that have some relationship to the church's present day worship, some sense of how they carried out worship and how God set up their worship that can be helpful for us. But even more than that, we're going to be able to see how the Lord is magnified, particularly in his priestly work of sacrifice, because he doesn't need many of the things that are so necessary for getting Aaron and his sons anywhere near the presence of God. Hmm. All right, with those things in mind, let's take a look at the text. This is Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him, and tied the sash around his waist, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil, and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar and all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons, and clothed them with coats, and tied sashes around their waists, and bound caps on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. And Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, 
and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took from them their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. That's our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 36. So, Pastor Kuntz, just... Uh, the chapter as a whole, before we dig into various details, those last words there that I read, these are the things that the Lord commanded. And over and over again, either Moses does them or Aaron and his sons do them. That seems to be a pretty important thread that runs through this chapter. This is not a ceremony for everyone. And that's a little bit difficult to understand until we realize that when the Lord sets up anything that he does, whether it's the family or the state, or in this case, the Old Testament church, not everyone has the same, we might say, role or purpose, or in more technical church language, we would say office, meaning set of duties. So Moses, Aaron, and his sons are responsible for inaugurating the Aaronic priesthood that's going to last until it is supplanted by a greater priesthood in the priesthood of Christ Jesus, which has only one person in its order. This order that's inaugurated here is going to provide for forgiveness of sins for all of Israel. That's not going to be the responsibility of every Israelite, but it will be the responsibility of everyone born, every male born into this priesthood 
from this time down to that time when the Lord supersedes it. So what we're dealing with here is that if Moses, Aaron and his sons are not faithful in their calling, that is destructive for all the rest of Israel. And that's exactly what we're going to see in time afterward, is that, like you hear in Malachi, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, right? So they should be able to go to the priest and know what the Lord says and, and find forgiveness and find expiation or, or offer thank offerings. And almost the whole gamut of offerings are actually here in chapter 8, just to get the priesthood started. You've got, you've got burnt offerings, you've got wave offerings, you've got an atoning offering. Um, but all of that needs to be managed by this group of people. And if they don't do it, like you're going to see as early as obviously uh, for Samuel, if they don't do it, then all of Israel is going to be in trouble. And that's the basic idea of what Ezekiel will call shepherds that really still applies in New Testament times. If, the, if those who are given to minister in the Lord's house are unfaithful in their doings, that affects way more people than just themselves, as it would have if Moses or Aaron had been unfaithful here in Leviticus 8. Well, and even just within the book of Leviticus, spoiler alert, but chapter 10 is coming, where <laughs> Nadab and Abihu, they yeah. offer unauthorized incense and unauthorized fire. And I mean, even right here within the book, much like in the previous book in Exodus, you know, you've got the instructions for the tabernacle, and Moses comes down the mountain, and oh, here's a golden calf. Right after this, you know, we're going to see two of Aaron's own sons not do what the Lord has commanded. And I, I think it, it adds to the, the importance of seeing it over and over again here. They're doing what the Lord has given, and that's one of the big keys. Right, yeah. Um, the, the fact that that trouble is going to come directly out of their own family, right? As, as Miriam is going to come out of their own family too, right? That's their sister, and um, is amazing. Um, but it's something that we're going to see over and over again, is that the very people who are going to destroy various elements of Israel's life, whether Eli's sons in 1 Samuel or David's descendants, are going to arise from his own family, right? They're going to arise from the very group of people given to guard that legacy, that calling, those duties. Out of that very place will arise those who will threaten that calling, that legacy, those duties. Hmm. So let's let's look at some of the details because there are plenty within this chapter as it as it gets started. And again, I, I think it's it's worth pointing out, as we talked about in the first episode of this series, that this is where there is a bit of narrative in the book of Leviticus. Things are actually happening here. <laughs> Sometimes we, we think of the book of Leviticus as only instructions, and certainly they're instructions, but here the people are carrying out yeah. the Lord's instructions. So the Lord, the chapter starts with the Lord talking to Moses, and he tells him to make this, this is going to be a public thing. And and we find out about some things that you really need some background from the book of Leviticus. We've got garments, anointing oil that are talked about. Uh, take us into those first four verses, the instructions that are given, and how Moses carries them out. Moses carries them out very faithfully, and this will be usually a hallmark of Moses um, apart from what will prevent him from entering Canaan, is that usually he is un he is very, very scrupulous. If the Lord says it, this is what we do, which you hear in that decisive word, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. That's just the way this goes. 
the little things that are brought together and and our translation today says garments i would prefer vestments there just because the idea that he had you know a t-shirt um it, but you know it's a nice t-shirt or he had his favorite pair of jeans or whatever this is not what's happening right you're getting special religious clothing in the same way that you get special oil and special animals who can't just be any old animals they have to be good animals your your biggest your best your first right um, and all that is going to be brought together in this place um, so that what the lord has wanted will be done now it's interesting the ordination is for aaron and his sons but the announcement of what is happening is for the whole assembly of israel so it's not that everyone's getting ordained, but everyone knows that an ordination is happening so that they can understand that this is what God is doing and this is what God is going to do to these men for all of them. Hmm. Right, so there's that, that public nature of this ordination for Aaron and his sons done for the sake of the whole congregation of Israel. And, and even in that sense, it, yep. I mean, it very much relates to what we've read already in the first seven chapters, because as those regulations for sacrifices were laid out, generally in each one, there was a part that was played by the worshiper, the one bringing the offering, and there was a part played by the priest. And so here, to see the whole congregation of Israel gathered together for the ordination, I think backs up what was there, so that when an Israelite comes to bring his sacrifice, he knows that he's going to the right person who's going to help him, and, and he's going to be able to go through the right that God has given so right. that the gifts of God can be received as God desires it to be done. And this, I mean, this sets up a pattern that I think usually people don't... I mean, let's just be honest about the way that this goes, is that usually people, when they're trying to read through the whole Bible beginning from Genesis, are probably bogged down before now. They get stuck in the slough of despond toward the end of Exodus. So if they've gotten here, it's hard to understand how this relates to anything. Um, we can talk and, and, and should and must about the Christological connections, but it's also helpful to understand that the church's historic forms of worship or ways of talking about the office of the ministry are not they're not arbitrary, nor are they even just sort of new things that the church came up with sometime in the book of Acts. Hmm. They reflect patterns that are already present, not commanded, uh, and having changed by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. We're not building temples and slaughtering rams much these days, but that the forms of worship and the, the idea, very simply, that when you want to relate to the Lord, the Lord sends you a man to announce his will, God's will, to you. And that that hasn't actually changed. Um, they look for a Messiah who is to come. We preach Christ crucified and risen, now coming again. But the idea that there's a guy that you go talk to and he can help you understand what is the Lord's will? What does the Lord say? What should I do with this particular sin in my life? That hasn't actually changed. So it's always profitable to consider these things not only in their Christological connection, but also through Christ in what we could call their church or their ecclesial 
that would be the adjective, their ecclesial connection, because we are not as different from people back then as sometimes we think. They're talking about that the Lord sends a man to, to talk to you about these things. It's, I think, worth pointing out again that we've got Moses as one of the main actors here in this chapter. And again, the Lord's been speaking yeah. through Moses this whole time in the book of, of Leviticus, but to see Moses take the active role in a book that we think a little bit more about priests, and Moses isn't one of the priests, yet Moses is the one that is receiving the Lord's Word, doing these actions at the Lord's commands. I mean, my mind then goes to like Deuteronomy 18, where the Lord says there's going to be a prophet like Moses that's coming, you need to listen to him, and seeing, a, again, a, Christical, a Christological connection there as well. So what what is going on here, and it, it, this might be something that as you're reading your Bible, you would just keep note of in a journal somewhere or something, is that when you take the three roles that you might have learned back in catechism, that Jesus has uh, three offices, that he's a prophet, yeah, Jesus is also a priest, and Jesus is a king. If you just take those roles, and you could take others perhaps, and you trace them through the Old Testament, you'll find that they slip in and out of each other. That there are kingly things that Abraham does, and there are prophetic things that priests sometimes do. And that there are priestly things that kings sometimes do. So here you have a prophet behaving as a priest in charge of the ordination, in charge of the sacrifices. You'll have a king behaving like a priest when Solomon dedicates the temple. And so what happens is that as those strands come in and out of each other throughout sacred history, they come together, and the threefold cord of prophet, priest, and king is not easily broken in Jesus Christ. And this is one way that you can understand how the scriptures hold together, is not only that here's a prophecy, okay, now it's fulfilled in Jesus, but also that things that we might call on the basis of Romans 5 types they come and they go, but we can see that they're not totally set apart from each other. Sometimes they touch each other. Sometimes the prophet behaves as a priest, and then they come together to stay together in Jesus Christ so that he fulfills everything that even your best prophet or your best king or best priest was doing at some point in the Old Testament. Hmm. Now, so the it's a public thing. Moses assembles the congregation there at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that they can see what's going to happen. He tells them this is the thing right. that the Lord has commanded to be done. So again, this is coming from the Lord. Moses hasn't imagined this on his own. And the first thing that happens is Moses takes Aaron and his sons, and he washes them with water, and then he begins to vest them. Well, they're vestments. I think that's a helpful term because what happens to the vestments is a key part of this this right. So talk to us about the washing with water and then the various vestments that Aaron especially starts to receive. So the washing with water is one reason that, um, and this is another thing you would want to trace throughout the Old Testament in the same way that you could trace types. You could also trace ceremonies. Washing with water always prepares for something else. It always gets you ready for to do something else. So you're going to wash the sacrifice, then you offer the sacrifice. You're going to wash the priest, then you ordain the priest. So you can begin to understand why the Pharisees and the Gospels are waiting for the Messiah to start baptizing, right? That's why they're looking at John the Baptist and saying, are you that guy, right? Because a Messiah, the Christ, would obviously wash 
for a new time, that, that new age, that, that jubilee that Jesus is talking about when he reads in Luke 4 and says, hey, you've been looking for this new age, this age of jubilee, this Christ age, it's here, it's me, right? So you're going to wash to get ready for something else. We get baptized so that we're ready for the day of judgment, right? So that we, we've already shared in a death like his, so we're going to share in a resurrection like his. So this washing is going to get them ready for ordination. The ordination involves vestment. And this is where this the old Lutheran term of an office is so helpful. The ministry in the Old Testament, the priesthood in the New Testament, the ministry of the gospel, is not about the guy and his amazing personality. He, not only does he have to be washed first, but he's got to put on a standard set of clothes, right? So this isn't saying, well, you got to wear as many clothes. I have some friends from seminary. They, if they found out about a new vestment, they'd buy it right away, right? Um, you don't, this doesn't say how many kinds of special clothes you need to wear. It just says you're in an office. You're doing, you're, you're this, you're, you're not just Aaron. You're not just Nadab. You're not just Ithamar right now. You are representing Israel. And that's this, the significance of the vestments is that they stand there representing Israel. It's interesting. Two things, one looking back, one looking forward with the vestments is that this is something we kind of don't pay attention to with the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Eden has precious jewels and met and uh, and metals inside of it, and those get put on the priest when he goes into God's presence. So there's something just like the temple will eventually have decoration on the side that's going to remind you of a garden. The priest will remind you of Adam when he goes into God's presence. That's kind of looking backward. Looking forward is that things like this, beautiful vestments, will be worn by the Lord Jesus when John sees him in the book of Revelation. Mm. So you, you both look backward to Adam, but you also look forward to Christ here in this Old Testament priesthood as they, as they vest to go before the Lord. Mm. So connections to Christ, the entire Old and New Testaments here in Leviticus chapter 8. We're going to keep looking at these words from the Lord on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Kuntz this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 5th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 36 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. He is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. 
Pastor Coons, prior to the break, we were talking about the vestments that Aaron is given to wear. And within the list there, which again, there's more information about these in the book of, Le- of Exodus, but the, the mention of the Urim and Thummim often catches people's eyes. What might those have been? They are definitely ways to discern the Lord's will. That's, we know that from how they're used in the Old Testament. What they were physically, we don't know. And this is something that when you're reading the Old Testament, it's often helpful when you see a word that ends in I am, like Urim, Thummim, Cherubim, Seraphim, is that the translator there is punting a little bit, okay? Because that's how you put things in plural in Hebrew, and it means that he's saying, I don't really know exactly what this is, so I'm just going to leave it in it. That's called transliterate. When you just take the word from the, you say, well, what's this? Uh, Well, it says Urim in Hebrew, so let's say Urim in English. And that's, that's helpful to understand is that not everything that we see in the Bible is immediately clear what exactly are we talking about. So sometimes this happens with animals that get mentioned or plants that get mentioned. But in this case, it's we are not sure what exactly they use to find out the Lord's will. You see the same technique in Acts when they're picking Matthias. They they choose by lot. It seems to be something where you discern the Lord's will by lot. But you can discern things by lot today using sticks or uh, all kinds of things. So we're not exactly sure what they are. And it's always helpful to know what the limits of our knowledge are. So we don't become arrogant and think that we know everything when we read the Bible. So by the end of verse 9, Aaron has been clothed in his priestly vestments. And then starting in verse 10, this is something that you might forget, but it's here in Leviticus 8. Moses begins to consecrate the various pieces of the tabernacle. What's there in the the consecration of the tabernacle and its appointments? The idea that you're going to use oil um, to consecrate the space in the same way that the vestments themselves are consecrated apart from the man is because the man in that sacred space is not there on his own standing. He's there by the Lord's will because the Lord has set apart those vestments and that space for the sacrifices that he will carry out. So it's interesting to consider how much Oil is actually required for anointing the whole tabernacle. But the point there is not cost. You'll notice that when they're talking about the services of the Lord's house, we know that the things they're using are costly, but we don't get cost estimates. They just do it. And, And the Lord would have it so that the costliest things that they would have or would have brought with them. If you just think about this in pure, you know, cash flow terms, well, where did you get all this stuff? Well, they probably got it from the Egyptians, right? Remember, they they plundered the Egyptians by the Lord's will. Okay, well, we brought it. Well, what should we use it for? Should we go buy nice chariots from the Babylonians? Well, no, you're going to use your costliest stuff for the services of the Lord's house. And the man who serves there is not going to serve there because he says, well, this is just the family business, which I've heard pastors today say, even even though the New Testament ministry, you don't get put into it genealogically like you did in the Old Testament. But even when it was the family business, 
you don't get to be there just because you're Aaron's son or you're Aaron. You get to be there because the Lord would have it. So it's his space, it's his house. They're his vestments. Well, and, and even with the way that then the consecration and the anointing with oil happens between Aaron and his sons, Dr. Kleining points out in his commentary that the oil is poured on Aaron's head, but it's not pour, poured upon his sons in this case. Their vestments are anointed there in verse 13, but yeah. not the sons themselves. Kind of, I think that gets at what you're talking about, that this is a, a gift from the Lord, not just some sort of, of right on their part. It is a gift from the Lord, and it operates by a principle that we usually only talk about um, when we're talking about Christian marriage. We talk about headship. and But the difficulty, if you look at particularly the letter to the Hebrews, on which Dr. Kleinig has also written very beautifully, you look at the letter to the Hebrews, is that one of the proofs for who's greater, who matters most, is that you know, one guy's ancestor offered a tithe to another guy, right? Abraham tithed his belongings to Melchizedek. Um, that has to do with the, this whole priesthood thing we talked about at the beginning. Well, how does that work? Well, that works because the Bible is always understanding what's happening to you through what happened to your ancestors. So if Aaron got anointed and you're Aaron's son, you that, that's enough, right? Your father was anointed. You're stepping into what your father did. Um, so that works on a principle that's pretty key for understanding, as you see in Romans 5, for understanding how the Bible just puts human life together. And that's through this principle that one stands for many. Aaron stands for his sons. Adam stands for the whole fallen race. Christ stands for the whole race rising in his resurrection. Hmm. So with Aaron now having been anointed, his son's vestments having been anointed, the tabernacle also anointed, then in verse 14, things get very bloody. So we start with the sacrifices, and there are a number of sacrifices, starting with the bull of the sin offering there in verse 14. Talk to us about what happens with that sacrifice. So this sacrifice involves something that would be familiar already from Exodus 24, where you need, you need blood to be sprinkled or, or shed or splash on two different parties because the blood, which has the life in it, brings peace by its shedding. So here you've got blood on the men to be ordained and you've got blood on the altar, which is the throne of God's presence. In the same way that there was blood in Exodus 24 on the altar, God's presence, and then on the people of Israel, all of them at the same time, so that there might be peace. So when you're looking at that that shedding of blood by the most valuable animal, because, and this is where if you're a rancher, you've kind of got a leg up as you read the Old Testament. If you're a rancher, you understand, you know, this animal's more valuable. This is a little less valuable. This is a lot less valuable. So what's most valuable goes first. The blood is shed. They have given up so much in shedding that blood but that's the blood that's going to bring peace and make the other offerings um, acceptable or possible even, where now you're going to have a burnt offering and then an, a, a ram of ordination. So it's very interesting. You've got something that Israel has at other times, which are burnt offerings. And these are generally extravagant, the fattest portions, which 
maybe we're grossed out by or not. It depends on what our sort of diet preferences are. So some of us are saying, oh, I love that stuff, right? I'm, I'm, I'm carnivore diet, I'm keto, whatever, or I'm grossed out by that. doesn't really matter. They were, they were closer to carnivore diet. I can say that safely. So they're going to offer the stuff that's most valuable, right? And they just offer it up. Then comes the animal for this specific event, this specific purpose, this ordination. So what, what the sequence here is peace has to happen. Peace has to be made through the shedding of blood. Then we can talk about extravagant sacrifice on the part of God's people. Then we can talk about this specific purpose within God's people. It's interesting to consider then that the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, needs the same forgiveness and the same expression of thanks and praise and a burnt offering that everybody else does. The special stuff comes last, and, and sacrifices will often be ordered this way in that you take care of the biggest issue first, then you get to the smaller or the more specific issue the smaller or more specific sacrifice. Hmm. With the thought that that Aaron and his sons need this sacrifice for their their sins before anything else happens, go ahead and, and make the Christological connections there and, and how Jesus then has the greater priesthood. Yeah, and I'm not going to improve on Hebrews, so I keep mentioning it, not, yeah. not just because I'm a, quote, New Testament guy, but because <laughs> the Bible fits together so beautifully, right? And when you read that, you, you see these things is that Aaron and his sons need forgiveness. And the thing about this rite of ordination is that every time you have a new guy, because the last guy died because of his sins, only sinners die, then you're going to need to do this all over again, potentially. The sacrifices are definitely going to happen all over again. So the, the question here is, is this, is this going anywhere? Does this point anywhere else? Can I get a priest who doesn't die? Well, if I, if I could get it, such a priest who is living, then I would have a priest who needs no expiation, needs no atonement. Uh, that's going to be the one, the only one, who's qualified to make atonement because he's not going to get wrapped up in this, this cycle of, well, I got, I got to atone for myself, and okay, I sinned again, and now I got to do this, and I got to do that, and then at the end, I'm going to die, or my sons are going to be unfaithful, then we're going to have a problem in succession. The reason Christ can be what Hebrews calls him over and over and over and over again, once for all, once for all, atoning sacrifice, once for all, ephapox, great Greek word, over is because, precisely because, he is himself without sin. So his sinlessness, that he is not a sinner, but accepts the, the guilt and the burden of sin on our behalf, that he is born of a virgin. These are not just sort of abstract, like uh, I just said it over and over again in church, so I guess I have to believe it. You know, this is not the... These are deeply meaningful for the fact that he can make an atoning sacrifice at all. And because the atoning sacrifice is at the heart of what he says he's here to do, in the Gospels, they're at the heart of the Bible. 
So he will supersede this Aaronic priesthood and their sacrifices precisely because he is the one who does not have to offer a bull for himself or a ram for himself, but he instead offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for all. Now, as you said, we have the two sacrifices, the bull, the ram, for the sake of Aaron and his sons, before we get to the actual matter of ordination, another ram that's offered in verse 22. After that ram has been killed, Moses does something with the blood that we've not encountered yet in the book of Leviticus. He takes that blood and he puts it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, the thumb of his right hand, the big toe of his right foot. He does the same thing to Aaron's sons. What's what's going on here? Yeah, so you said... You said bloody, and that was great, but I think maybe people get grossed out by the word, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some people think, they think, uh, you know, the word, uh, they, there's just a bunch of words various people don't like. They don't use them. They don't like to hear them. Bloody is one of them. They want to avoid things that are bloody. This is makes it difficult to understand the Bible because blood in the system of sacrifice that the Lord is providing for his people, blood makes peace. Blood, which is life expended, allows life to go on. So blood is a beautiful thing. Um, This is something that if you've ever gone hunting, maybe the first time that you get an animal, they might put blood on you. And maybe the listeners are even more grossed out now that I said that, But it is at that time, it's an honor to have that first blood. The blood is put on the priests because the priests will work with blood. And that's a beautiful thing. That's an honor to have the blood put on them. It's put on the right side because the Bible is very deeply invested in something that not all pastors that I've seen uh, conduct a divine service have quite grasped as to the symbolism, but it's biblical symbolism that traditionally the pastor is going to use his right hand in liturgical gestures. The reason is because, and it's contained actually in the Latin word for left-handed, which is sinister, that the left is not a good place to be and the right is a blessed place to be. So Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The, the blessed sheep welcomed into the kingdom in Matthew go on the right. The goats depart on the left of the Lord who is there in judgment. So the right is what they are going to use primarily to bring blessing to God's people in the same way that we still do in the divine service when we offer blessings or distribute the sacrament, Right. Um, and if the symbolism's not being carried out in your local congregation, that's okay. That's fine. It depends on Christ's word, not on the pastor's grasp of the symbolism. But the symbolism is there for a reason, and it's because the right is the place of blessing. So the reason this is so beautiful and such an honor to have the blood on them is because through blood they will bring blessing to Israel. They're going to work in blood, and maybe that seems gross to people, but the working in blood is the very thing that will bring blessing to God's people. What about the three particular places on the right side, the ear, the thumb, the big toe? So the the ear is uh, has to do with the fact that the priesthood is not just going to be linked to doing stuff, but to 
listening. And this has to do with the priest's teaching role that I referred to earlier from Malachi and often gets forgotten. But it's a reason that the priesthood has slightly different standards, for example, for marriage in the law of Moses, is that they are going to be held to a slightly different standard because their, their responsibility will be to teach God's law to everybody. That's the ear. And then uh, the thumb and the big toe are both the way that they're going to handle sacrifices with their hands uh, and lift their hands in blessing, something you see um, they're trying to get Zechariah to do, but he can't talk at the beginning of Luke. But, but Jesus will then do after his sacrifice at the end of Luke. Um, the toe has to do with entry um, because this is, a, this is a frightening thing to come near the holy God. And if the blood is on the man's foot, then the man himself is covered and may walk without trepidation around the altar of God into the nearer presence of God in and out of these places as Moses is, himself is doing in the ordination ceremony. So you've got a connection between both what his work is going to be, he's going to listen to God, he's going to bless God's people, but also the fact that he's going to cover ground that not everybody can cover. And that that's what the blood on the foot is going to do for him. Now, as this rite of ordination continues, blood also gets thrown against the side of the altar, and then Moses begins to take the appropriate parts of this ram, as well as some of the bread that was in this basket, and he now puts them in the hands of Aaron, who waves them before the Lord. Take us farther into this ordination rite. Yeah, the, the waving that's going to go on is... Um, these are these are offerings that you've gotten earlier in the law of Moses as offerings of thanksgiving or sacrifice. They are the types of the sacrifice of thanksgiving that our confessions, especially the apology, discusses the sacrifices that Christians still carry on. So this is a recognition, too, that what has been given and what, what's going to be consumed, also the flesh later consumed, has been given by God. Now, it's also a, a communion or a fellowship with the kinds of things, not only the blood, but also the daily, the daily offering and the bread of presence that will be consumed by priests hereafter. So what you're also getting here is a type, not only of the work, but also of all that will be given to the priests because of their work, from this day forward. Um, and the bread, as well as the flesh later on consumed, are part of that. Moses's wave offering, I think, is very interesting because we don't, I mean, he's not getting ordained to be a priest here, but it's almost like his part in this is cause for elevation and thanksgiving. Hmm. Now, to think about that this way, I think the reason it's so surprising to me is that he has such a powerful and exalted role in the ceremony that he actually puts in the hands of the priests-to-be the things that they will offer in thanksgiving. But he himself must also offer something in thanksgiving. And it's very 
wonderful, really, to think about the fact that the hands that will bring blessing first are hands that give thanks, and that 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 gratitude will precede the actual work of atoning sacrifice, daily offering of thanksgiving, the offering of incense, the showbread, and so forth, that before all that, the thing that they do is gratitude, right? An offering of thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes we forget about the, the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving within the, the Christian life yeah. and in Christian worship. You know, and it's such a basic thing, but I do think sometimes we forget about it. And even, you know, we were talking about sacrifices, ordination, and, and divine service, and even just the name that we sometimes use, although I, I don't know that it's often as used among Lutherans as among others, but Eucharist, that means thanksgiving. Uh-huh. Yeah. We, might, we might do well to, to recall that a little more often. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that this is helpful to understand that when you, when, when you, the people of God, all of you, the people of God, are called a royal priesthood, there's a combination of two of those offices, if you were listening earlier, but you're called a royal priesthood. You have to understand that that, that means after Christ's blood sacrifice, only offerings of thanksgiving. So even more than for the Old Testament priesthood, Christians are defined by thanksgiving because we have no blood atonement that we need to reckon with or to make or to perform. But we do have immense thanksgiving. That's why, and I know some Lutherans, you know, they're upset that George Washington issued a a proclamation or Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation during the Civil War concerning Thanksgiving Day. But I love not only Thanksgiving and its food, the holiday here in America, but I also love the idea of going to church on a day especially appointed for the topic or the theme of Thanksgiving, because the topic or theme is rich throughout the scriptures, especially for God's priests who are now all of God's people. We've got about four minutes here, Pastor Coons. I want to make sure we do finish the right. So after the, the... that uh, the wave offerings have happened, then Moses takes now anointed anointing oil and blood from the altar to sprinkle, and then he gives instructions about eating and how long this rite is going to take. Help us through the, the last bit of this text. Okay, so the oil and the blood go together because substances are not unholy because we think, ew, that's weird. They're unholy when they are consecrated or they are used in unholy ways. So blood can both defile you in the Old Testament, but can also be the holiest thing imaginable. The substances are mixed together because both anointing for some purpose, this will happen to kings as well, um, anointing, which is what the oil does, and atonement um, and covering of sin, which is what blood does, are going to go together for the Aaronic priesthood. You will notice, therefore, that Jesus is described as the anointed one, but not the one sprinkled with blood. He doesn't need to be himself sprinkled with blood to do his work. He provides a, a flow of blood, a sprinkling, which is, which is going to cleanse all the nations, but he is the source of that because he is the atoning sacrifice. The Aaronic priests need both the oil and the blood, the time set for these things, seven days, seven times around the altar earlier, is that seven really is the scripture's number for completion in the same way that the creation is 
is created in six days and the week is completed in seven, including that day of rest. So what you see here at the end is that all these things are going to set apart a priesthood that will be marked out, needing forgiveness itself, but able through atoning sacrifice and the offering of daily sacrifices to bless God's people from that day forward. With about two minutes here in the morning, Pastor Coons, help us to wrap things up and, and tie these things together in Jesus Christ, our great high priest. So Leviticus is only going to seem dry until you read the rest of the Bible. And then right. maybe come back to Leviticus and say, wow, I can't believe I didn't listen to this series every single day while Pastor Apple was covering it, because now I understand that Leviticus is simply redolent, reeking with Christ in so many ways, whether you trace the oil or the anointing or the atoning sacrifice or the shedding of blood or does this guy have to get replaced or is there a priest that won't ever have to be replaced that we could trust in and that would be Christ Jesus. So Leviticus is a place where so much of the Bible comes together. It's just that sometimes you miss those crossroads until you see as you could in Hebrews or in the chapters about the Lord's death in each of the Gospels, and then go back to Leviticus and say, wow, I never saw this before. And then you're going to see so much as I think we have this morning. The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 36. Pastor Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus chapter 8, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.